For those who have not yet stumbled across Bill Walton's website, you've been missing some major opportunities, like marketing lessons from the Grateful Dead, or the video of when Bill told veteran broadcaster Tom Hammond that, quote, John Stockton is one of the true marvels of the world, not just in basketball, but in the entire history of Western civilization. To which Hammond replied, quote, wow, I guess I really don't have a handle on world history. You can find out all these things, plus Bill's favorite foods, his latest charities, and how John Wooden taught him that to be a champion, to achieve the ultimate levels of accomplishment, happiness, and success, it wasn't going to be just about Bill, but would also include so many of those around him. Hello, my big bag of fun. Leslie Visser. Wow. I have reached the top of the mountain. I am having a conversation with Leslie Visser, my hero. I know the listeners can't see this, but in your honor, I went and found my oldest T-shirt. This <laughs> was from when I started at the Boston Globe in 1974. 1974, I was a senior in college, but weren't you on a scholarship program at the Globe in 1974? I was, thanks. I won a Carnegie Foundation grant. People huh. can't believe it these days. Well, you're like really smart. You know, it was such a frontier back then. Women, as you know, were just starting to go to law school, medical school. So I applied for a Carnegie Foundation grant that were, it was given to 20 women in America who wanted to go into jobs that were 90% male which in 1974 was all white collar jobs. So a woman from Michigan got it for archaeology, a Johns Hopkins woman got it for ophthalmology, and I got it to be a sports writer. <laughs> and I went to the Boston Globe. Well, the scholarship opportunities that when I was growing up was something that changed our family's lives because both my older brother and I got to go to UCLA on athletic scholarships. And from the time that we were 17, he's, he was a year, he was 18 months older than I am. But now my older brother, he's now passed away. So uh, I have to kind of figure out how I'm going to refer to him. But uh, wasn't he a football player? Oh, yeah. No, he yeah. was an All-America football player at UCLA, academic All-America. Then he went on to play for the Dallas Cowboys and with the, all the legendary players from the 70s and Bruce and I are the only brother combination in the history of the world to have played in the Super Bowl and to have won the NBA championship. Oh. Coming from a family that had zero interest in sports. I, our parents, the greatest parents ever. My mom's still alive. She's 94 years old. My dad passed 17 years ago. Greatest parents ever, but zero interest in sports. Tell me this. You're the son of a librarian. I'm the daughter of an English teacher. Who, how cool was my mom? A couple of things were really cool about her. One, you know, you get days, um, days to go to a museum or something. We lived, in, we lived in the Berkshires and of Massachusetts, and my mom would rent Peter Pan buses, and the historical trip was to Fenway Park. But as an English teacher, obviously, same thing with you. We had books all over the house. What did your mom bring home from the library when you were a kid? She brought home adventure books. She brought home history. Because I'm a nonfiction reader, and I love history, biography, uh, experimentation, success stories, and I, I read constantly. And the inspiration that my mom had, she just brought home a new stack of books every day. We did not have a television growing up in our house. And so- it, Well, we how'd had, you see the Celtics? Well, we had the radio. Ah. We had Chick Hearn, 
And that's how I fell in love with the Celtics because of the way that Chick Hearn talked about the Celtics and made all of them my heroes. And Bill Russell, Red Auerbach, all the guys. And then when I was in college, I started, I was in college from 70 through 74. And there was a former UCLA player who was 15 years older than I am, Willie Knowles. And now Willie uh, had played at UCLA and he was the starting center on the last college team to ever beat Bill Russell. And that was a game at UCLA. And, and then and then Willie Knowles went on to his own professional career with a number of different teams, including the Boston Celtics. Now, Willie Knowles, like so many of my heroes, he dedicated his life to empowering and enabling other people, particularly children through sports and through a spiritual life that he led himself. And so he had a soul-filled foundation. You had the Carnegie Foundation that got you started on this incredible path to the top. And Willie Knowles was doing the same thing to allow other children to go to school, be involved in different sports programs. And so every summer, Willie Knowles would bring Bill Russell, Sam Jones, Casey Jones, John Havlicek, Sam Sanders, uh, to, and Bill Sharman was already there in Los Angeles. And Casey Jones was the coach of the, of the Lakers uh, in the early 70s with, with Bill Sharman. Bill Sharman, I believe, was born in Van Horn, Texas, or Amarillo, right around there, El Paso, maybe. And the way I know this is because I had the privilege of taking John Madden's bus with him many years. I did all the Madden summer all games. And so you probably know that he would go I-10 through El Paso, and his favorite restaurant was Chewy's in Van Horn. And we would be on the bus talking about famous people from the big country. And so John, you know, he'd come with Tex Cobb, and I'd say, well, Charmin, you know, Koozie's back, of course, you know, Koozie's backcourt mate. And then he would say, well, uh, there was another a football player, he'd say, and I would say, Stead, what's his name? Stead, Graham Stedman, Stedman Graham, who's Oprah's boyfriend, who, of course, John hadn't heard of and was insulted. Like, what was I mentioning him for? But um, yeah, Bill Sharman, I think he went to high school in California, but was born in West Texas. I don't know where he was born, but he kind of came from Porterville, which is a small farm town in the southern San Joaquin Valley, went down to USC and just a remarkable turn of events for a player, a person like Bill Sharman, uh, whose wife, Joyce, like you, like Lori, just an incredible angel of mercy. But I'm assuming, Leslie, that you've seen that movie about John Madden. That was fantastic. You and John have something. I mean, I've, it's been a privilege for me. I've worked almost with everyone and many years. You know, I mean, did Dick Emberg ever tell you the first time that coach wouldn't ask Dick to sit with him on the bus? I'm sure he's told you this, but it was so great. He was nervous. Coach wouldn't ask Dick to come up and sit with him in the front of the bus. And as Dick tells it, he said, oh, I'm going to find all about the zone press. Here we go. And coach, <laughs> coach looked at him and said, young man, have you read Edna St. Vincent Millay? <laughs> and I'm sure that there was not a word mentioned about basketball the entire time. Was not. And so of of all the people that I've met in my life, Dick Enberg was the closest 
in terms of character and personality to John Wooden, in terms of that, you know, that Midwestern background in his book, Dick's book, Oh My, just absolutely incredible. And so when Dick was on his book tour, he, in every city, he knew somebody and he would have that person host the book party. And then and they would go back and forth. And so in San Diego, which is my hometown and where Dick ultimately settled down, I got to be the chosen one. Yeah, I remember we went over to your house. I still have the picture of Dick joking around, sat in your rocking chair and right. he put some ridiculous thing on his head and you had like a crocheted blanket for him. That's called an Afghan that my mom knits please. Or maybe it's crocheting. I still don't know the difference between knitting and crocheting, but my mom still knits. She still crochets. She still lives in the same house. She's been in the same house for 69 years. I introduced um, Dick a few times at, at events before he passed away. And I used to say, all you have to know about this guy is that he worked with both Al McGuire and Bill Walton. <laughs> I miss Al McGuire. Oh. So many fun times, those days that we had at CBS together. We'd be in there and we, Al was significantly older than us and a lot more experienced. And so we would have these seminars, which, which were very cool because you would learn a lot from very interesting people. And Al would just be sitting there during these seminars, reading the paper, drawing stuff on, you know, drawing up notes, writing different speeches down all the time. And when they would finally look at him and say, you know, come on, Al, you got to pay attention here. And Al said, I'll be fine. Before I worked with you and Dick, I worked with Al McGuire and Dick. And, you know, you do four games a day, right? In the first couple, first round in two sites. And you, you know this, Al just wouldn't come to the fourth game. He just sort of had it by then. Too many big fellas, aircraft carriers. But um, I remember once at dinner, I think you were there, we all did our favorite Al McGuire line. And you wouldn't remember, but my favorite Al McGuire line is when he said, kamikaze pilots, I don't get it. Why do they wear helmets? One day we were with Al in Los Angeles. And we were in Ernie Vandeway's Rolls Royce. And I was in the front seat. Ernie was driving. And in the back seat, it was John Wooden and Al McGuire. And Al was on his way to New Zealand. And New Zealand was one of Coach Wooden's favorite places. And so Al was just peppering Coach Wooden incessantly, you know, about all the information about, about New Zealand because Al had not been there. And Al was taking some notes and asking him about all these people. Coach Wooden was going through his phone book and giving him all these contacts <laughs> down there. And Al wrote them all down. Al goes down there and has a fantastic time. And Coach Wooden never hears, never hears from a single one of the contacts that he provided to Al McGuire. And, and, then, and then we're back together on the way back from New Zealand for Al and Coach Wooden says, Al, what happened? And none of my friends heard a word from you. And, and Al looked at Coach Wooden and said, Coach, I just wanted to know where not to go. <laughs> and so uh, he, he was just a character. But, but the characters are what makes it so fun. And, you know, the, the, the joy that you get when you're on a great basketball team, when you're on a great broadcasting team, and you've been on some of the absolute best. And, and I was watching all those people on the Madden movie. And to be able 
to know literally every single one of the people that were in the movie. It was just a real thrill and a privilege for me because broadcasting was something that I never considered. Yeah, matter of fact, in college, you didn't even talk to the media, did you? I couldn't. I'm a lifelong stutterer. You, you came across today in the introduction of this fantastic program when you said, if you have not stumbled... My life is one of stumbling constantly. English is my fifth language. I'm a stutterer. I'm a stumbler. I'm a spitter. And to see all those people in the John Madden movie and the tribute and the way they did that, just spectacular. And then for me to to be sitting there thinking, I know every one of those people. Well, do you know you had something that he had, which... uh... It was what Eleanor Roosevelt said. It's the best thing that you could give your child or your child could have. Um, You and John have great curiosity and nothing escaped John. Like we'd be riding through, you know, Utah on the way to a 49er game. And he would stop if he saw lights in a field, you know, like um, Field of Dreams. Oh, he'd pull over. I took him once to a St. John's basketball game when it was Alumni Hall, not in the garden, just because. He heard the great tradition of St. John's and he wanted to sit in the bleachers. And he was he was one of the most normal, which I think your 86 Celtics were this. John was one of the most normal superstars, which um, would you say that was true of your 86 team? No, because we had Larry Bird. We had Kevin McHale. They were spectacular basketball players who were also remarkable human beings. We were privileged to be on this team that Red Auerbach had created, had assembled, had built from nothing. And when you have that sort of privilege, you know, that privilege, it's like life. You know, it's like when we see these people who are causing all kinds of problems out there because they won't go along with the program. Uh, Privilege, it carries with it responsibility. The sense that you have and the the people that were selected. I mean, I, I, I had the privilege of playing for six Hall of Fame coaches. And it was uh, really spectacular, the relationship that I had with all of them, what I learned from them, and the effort and the time that they took in terms of who they were going to select to have on the team. And so, you know, you, you have you know, some of the absolute greatest basketball players ever. And then other players who were willing to play along with that game, you know, because we had Larry and Kevin and nobody else did. But we also had Robert Parrish, who was, you know, playing behind Robert Parrish was basically like following a Brinks truck down a bumpy road and they forgot to close the doors <laughs> back. And then we had Dennis Johnson and Danny Ainge. Now, DJ, tragically, they didn't put him into the Hall of Fame until after he died. Danny Ainge belongs in the Hall of Fame. Rick Carlisle, Jerry Seasting, Scott Wedman. Scott Wedman, he would be... Uh, there would be days when Scott Wedman was the second greatest basketball player on the planet, and he couldn't get in the game because when Casey Jones would substitute Scott for Larry, Scott would come trotting out of the court, 
And Larry would say, well, what are you doing out here? Scotty would say, well, Larry, you know, I'm coming in for you. And Larry said, I'm not going out. So you go tell somebody else. You go in for somebody else. I'm not going out. But uh, You know what, Robert, I talked to him the other day. And um, first of all, he calls you uh, William. Right. right. right? I call him chief because I'm a stutterer. I need short names. I mean, you know it, but would you tell the story of why one of the greatest he asked you to be his presenter for the Hall of Fame. There's no greater honor. There's no. Yes, there is honor. no. No, I've had a couple of them myself, but uh, he said that there is no greater show of respect. That that the first thing we tell the story, the first thing of when you landed in Boston, what you did. I had begged and pleaded and ultimately bought my way onto the Boston Celtics, and it was a, a, a long and winding saga. And so I, I fly there from San Diego. I'm, I'm a San Diegan and I'm a California beach guy. And I had no idea. I mean, I had been to Boston uh, uh, with opposing teams. I had uh, been to Boston with the Grateful Dead. I'd been to Boston on business, but I had never gone there to live. And now here I was going to go and be on the Boston Celtics, which was my boyhood dream team. But Robert Parrish, you know, he, he he is the starting center and he is the foundational pillar. He's the guy that kept everything together because, you know, as great as Larry and Kevin were, you know, they were out there being wild and just doing, doing their thing. Larry, yeah. The Larry and Kevin thing. Uh, and somebody had to hold it down in the middle. And, and, and that was Robert. And I, I'm a team guy. I, I only want to win. I, you know, I play to win. Uh, everything I do is for the success and the, and the uh, accomplishments, achievements of the team. And so when I got off that plane, ML Carr picked me up at the airport. And, you know, ML wasn't going to play anymore. He was just going to be in the front office. And I got in the car and I looked at him. I said, ML, take me over to Chief's house. And so he looked at me. And ML understood immediately. And so we drive over there and, uh, and, and Chief comes out and we stand there and we talk. And I, and I just explained to him, I said, Robert, you know, I, I am here to help you. That's my only goal, my only purpose, my only dream. Because I, I, I know how important it is to be on a special team. I mean, that was my whole life. Every choice I made was to be a part of something that was really special and really great in a, in a team, because that was the culture I grew up in. Did you feel like he did that, um, you know, he couldn't wait to get away from Golden State? Did you feel like you were getting out of Clipper jail? Uh, I mean, was it just this bounteous gift that not only were you leaving the Clippers, but you were going to the Celtics? Well, I played... For six Hall of Fame coaches, I played for some of the greatest basketball teams ever. But I also spent six years of my life on the Clippers with Donald Sterling. Now, he wasn't the owner the entire time. There was uh, another character before that. But uh, now the, the bizarre reality or the alternative reality that was the Clippers and Donald Sterling was just beyond description in terms of you know, this just couldn't possibly be any weirder. And, you know, it, it, you know, it's like some people wake up in the morning and say, you know, what can I do to make things better? That's the kind of person I want to be. I try to be. Some people wake up and say, how can I make things worse? 
you know, what, what's the worst thing that I can do to some to somebody else? What's the worst thing I can do for the planet today? And uh, that was the climate of the yeah, that was the culture. And and so, you know, I I I had no idea. I mean, I knew the basketball would be good. Well, a, a critical person in terms of uh, convincing me that I should go to Boston was David Halberstam who had lived in Boston when he was a college student at Harvard. This guy was an incredible spiritual force of nature, David Halberstam, and the impact that he had on my life. And when David first came to my house, uh, the house I'm sitting in right now, and uh, this was this would have been in 1980 or so, he, uh, he, he found me through Jack Ramsey. And Jack Ramsey was this brilliant coach who made me the best player that I ever was. And so uh, Jack and David knew each other because of their mutual interest in education and books and in reading. And so when David came to my house to interview me for what turned out to be the breaks of the game, he, at the end of the day, looked at me and said, Bill, thank you. Would you mind if I go over and interview your parents? And I said, well, what do you want to talk to them about? Well, they said, well, they're your parents, and you've talked about them a lot today and the influence that they've had. And I'd like to meet them and, and interview them. I said, okay. So I called up my mom and dad, and they just lived 10 minutes away. And I said, hey, uh, there's this guy here, and he wants to come over and interview you. And they said, okay, that's fine. So just send him over. And uh, I said, oh, his name is David. And uh, I said, okay. And so and every night, every night since I was probably 23 or 24, uh, I would always call, as I'm going to bed, I call my parents and just give them a rundown on the day and tell them I love them and tell them thanks. And you know, every night, still to this day. And, and so when I called them that night, I have no idea how David found my parents' house because there was no GPS. There was no <laughs> right. Maps. He's a reporter. There was no ways, but he had the address. I don't know. So when I talked to my parents that night, they said, uh, they said, Billy, you didn't tell us this was David Halberstam coming over to the house. The best so, and the brightest. Right. Well, all the powers that be, you know, the, the coldest winter, the children, they just every single, the fifth. What about teammates? About I the greatest franchise in the I history. I read them all. I just baseball. don't. I just don't read about myself. Oh, that's why you didn't read it. Okay. Yeah, I don't read about myself. But tell me, um, I've heard Red tell the story, but I'd love to hear from you. Of um, okay, Bird says get Walton, but then wasn't your physical at Mass General like a disaster? So, so after I went to Chief's house, I you know I I had to go down and go down to the hospital, Mass General, the East End Astoro Drive there, and get a physical. And I don't know anybody in town, you know. I know Red, <laughs> I know Red, and, right. and, and, and I know Chief, <laughs> and ML. I know ML, but you know uh, I played against Larry and Kevin and uh, and and Danny, but they were the young guys, and I and so. You know, I, I go to this hospital and the, I can, I'm, I'm surrounded by all these doctors and my x-rays and medical records are all over the walls and the floors. Oh I can hear them talking in the corner. You know, look, 
there's no way we can pass this guy. Look at his feet. Look at his knees. Look at his spine. Look at his hands and wrists. Look at his face. What, what are we going to tell Red? We can't pass him. <laughs> and then Red bursts in the room. He walks right in, in through the double doors of a, a hospital, smoking his cigar. And he, he just walks in and looks around and says, who are you guys? And what are you doing with my player? <laughs> and Red said, you know, the doctor said, Red, come over here. Come over here. I said, what do you want? He said, I've got to talk to you, Red. And I can hear him in the corners telling Red, Red, look at these x-rays. Look at these records. We can't pass this guy. Look at his feet. Look at his face. Look at his spine. Red says, shut up. I'm in charge here. And he pushed his way through all these doctors and came right over to me. And I'm lying on the on the hospital examining table there, right? And I'm lying there and he looks down at me, smoking away on his cigar and he says, Walton, can you play? And I looked up at him with the sad, soft eyes of someone who just wanted one more chance, one more chance to be a part of something really special. And I looked up at him and I said, Red, I think I can, I think I can. And he looked at me, stood up straight, looked around at all the doctors, took a super deep, heavy drag on that cigar, held it in as long as humanly possible. We all thought he was going to die on the spot. He was holding it in so long. Sweat was beating up on his forehead. You can just see all the machinations in his brain going, what, what am I going to do here now? And he looked around and he just finally exhaled. And I swear that smoke came out green and it was just, uh, up against all the, the neon white lights for the x-rays. You could see shamrocks. You could see the leprechauns and the forms and the images. It was fantastic. And Red looked around and he says, he's fine. He, he passes. Let's go. It's like an angel got his wings. That, that was the kind of guy that Red Auerbach was. And we loved him and we would do anything for him. And when I watched the movie about Al Davis and Pete Rozelle, that was Red Auerbach, too. That, that was the fighter. Now, now, Red, you know, he, he didn't do the thing where he was moving around the country. Uh, you know, always looking for a new stadium like Al Davis was. But Al Davis, you know, Al Davis's players, they loved him. Oh, they killed we loved, him. We loved Red Auerbach. We would do anything for those guys. And I had a privilege when the 70s, when I was uh, all up and down, the, you know, California, all the time I spent with the Grateful Dead in the Bay Area. I mean, to, to spend time with Al Davis and John Madden in the 70s, I mean, that was just spectacular. And you, you, I just learned so much. And to, to, to have these experiences. And then at the same time that I'm, you know, in the NBA, coaches like Lanny Wilkins and Jack Ramsey and Gene Chu and Paul Silas and Don Chaney, ultimately Casey Jones, my brother's playing on the Dallas Cowboys with, with Tom Landry. And Tom Landry and John Wooden were close as can be for lots of different reasons, including the fact that the Cowboys summer camp, the Cowboys preseason training camp was at Thousand Oaks, which was outside of Los Angeles on the way to Santa Barbara. And that's right where John Wooden's basketball camps were on the same college campus. Uh, it was, uh, gosh, it wasn't, it was Cal Lutheran, Cal Lutheran College. 
And so Coach Wooden would have his basketball camps all day. The Cowboys were playing football. And every day at the lunch break, Coach Wooden and Tom Landry would have lunch together. And they would swap the stories about the Walton Broys, Bruce and Bill. What did John Wooden and Red Auerbach have in common or how were they totally dissimilar? They came from different backgrounds. Red was a street guy. Red was a city guy. John Wooden grew up on a farm, no electricity. No running water, no indoor plumbing. On Christmas Day, they got to use toilet paper. The rest of the time, it was the Sears Roebuck catalog. And so they were different from where they came, but where they were going was the same place. And Red was uh, much more the business guy. Coach Wooden was much more the educator, but Red was an educator as well. Wasn't Red always? like two two chess moves ahead. It always seemed like that Red, I mean, when you look at your team or particularly the 84 team going against the Lakers, you know, they were all from those little colleges, Centenary. And where did DJ go? He didn't go. Well, the way that Sam Jones and all the Celtics in the early days with Bill Russell, that how they got to become Celtics because Red, you know, Red wasn't out scouting in college. I mean, he, he just had his buddies who would call right. him up and say, Hey, I saw this guy and he's really good. And Red trusted the guy and he drafted who hit the recommendation. I mean, Sam Jones got there that way. And the moves that he made to, to uh, acquire Bill Russell when, uh, when most everybody else said, no way, we're not taking him. Did you talk Larry Bird? this can't be right. This can't be right. Into going to his house and you took dirt from his driveway. This can't be right. Yes. Oh yes. No, no. Yeah. Well, I have dirt from three people's houses that I brought home and I mixed it, intermingled it with the dirt in my backyard court. It's one of the advantages of your mom still being alive in the same house for 69 years. Cause I, I built my own court in the backyard. And, I, you know, I could with the shovel and put all the rocks in place to hold the wall. But you must have been 40 years old when you went to Bird's house. No, I was in my uh, early 30s. Well, still, you weren't 12. So I needed a change of luck in my life. We're playing in Indiana with the Celtics. Uh, and, it, it, and we have a game on one night and the next game is not for two or three nights. Right. And so... I talked Casey Jones into letting me and Larry uh, go uh, down to French Lick and then meet the team at the next game because I had never been to French Lick and I would never get to French Lick unless Larry was going to be there. Yeah, he didn't let people really go there. Right. And so we we get in the car after the game and, and whenever Larry was in Indianapolis, he had a state trooper, Indiana state trooper, drive him around. Uh, his name was Dr. Root. And uh, and so and somehow Quinn Buckner was in the car with us, too. Quinn was not on the team at the time, but he was probably traveling with us. And it, it was uh, he's good in Indiana. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> the guy, so, you know, we, we get down there to Indiana. I mean, into French Lick. And it, it is a quite the different scene for for little Billy from San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. And uh, we go to Jubal's and we go to the town square. And ultimately, we we get over to Larry's uh, uh, boyhood home where where his uh, mom is, is still living. 
And and so Larry's doing his Larry Bird stuff, and I, I'm in the kitchen talking to his mom. And and so I uh, looking out the kitchen window, and I said, uh, "So, Mrs. Bird, is, is, is that the is that the court that Larry grew up on?" And uh, she said, "Yes, yes, it is." And I said, "Mrs. Bird, do you have a uh, a canning jar with, with a lid? Might you have an extra one?" And she said, "I think I do, Bill." And so she rummaged through the cupboards and she pulled out this really nice quart-sized jar with a lid on it. And I took it and I went outside and I got down on my hands and knees and I scraped the top layer of dirt off from Larry Bird's court. And I put it in this jar after I rubbed it all over, you know, rubbed it all over my face, all over my arms and legs and into my hair and everything. But I still had a full jar of the Larry Bird dirt. I didn't count the stuff that I put on myself right there on the spot. And I I, I was not going to leave without a full jar of Larry Bird dirt. And so I put that jar in my game bag. And I, I don't know what the players have now for their game bag. But, you know, for you know me, my game bag was always the jump ropes, silly putty for my fingers, and tape cutters, and who knows a, what else. A book? Uh, yeah, a book and who knows what else, but I had the jar of Larry Bird dirt. <laughs> and uh, and so if, if, if things ever went wrong during the course of the season, then I would just take a little bit of it out and rub it on me again and, 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 and hope for, you know, pray for better weather. And, and so then when I finally got home after we won the championship, uh, I went home for the summer, as I always did. I came back to San Diego and I went. Went over to my mom and dad's house and I went straight away out to the backyard. And I took that jar of dirt and I sprinkled it, the Larry Bird dirt, all over the dirt that I grew up playing on. Oh, and God, that's beautiful. So I, I also did that. Yeah, uh, who are the other two? Uh, Mike D'Antoni in his oh, house. Yeah? In, in Italy? No, his house in Mullins, West Virginia. Oh, sorry. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Uh, that was a trip. And then the other third is Pat Kilkenny, who is a friend of mine. And uh, his his family uh, has a big ranch up in uh, eastern Oregon. And so I was there and I needed some dirt. I needed needed uh, a better turn of events. And uh, Larry had given that to me. Mike D'Antoni had given that to me. Mike D'Antoni gave it to the world when he saved basketball, coaching Phoenix. And then Pat Kilkenny, uh, when Ernie Vandewey died, uh, Pat Kilkenny stepped into a very big void, huge void. And since Ernie died, everything good in my life can be traced back now to Pat Kilkenny. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today on Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you stream your podcast to enjoy new episodes every week. In Conversation with Leslie Visser is part of the Sirius XM Podcast Network and is available on the SXM app included with most subscriptions. The executive producer is the great Andrew Emmer, sound design by Robert Moore, and special thanks to Sirius XM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. Talk to you next week.
Sirius XM Podcasts.